So towards the end of my career, just about everybody who's on our staff there was one of my residents at one time where I taught them at a trauma course or something like that. All the Wilford Hall staff, Caldwell and Davis and you and Chari, all the ones who trained in the military system were all my residents at one time. And that's just so fulfilling just to see the person that you kind of honed and see them become leaders in their field and subject matter experts. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we honor and celebrate the life of retired Army Colonel Dr. Anthony Johnson, a renowned ophthalmologist, leader, mentor, and friend who passed much too soon on September 23, 2022. War Docs was provided access to an extended interview with Tony that was recorded in 2021 by colleagues Gary Legault and Grant Justin close to a year and a half from the end of Tony's battle with cancer. We highlight his legacy in this podcast and hear his perspectives on life and his distinguished military medicine career. Dr. Johnson was a cornea specialist and innovative ophthalmological surgeon. From his early passion for medicine, his journey through West Point Military Academy, to his pioneering work in ophthalmology, Dr. Johnson's story is a testament to resilience and innovation. We explore his time serving in Iraq, performing eyesight-saving surgeries amidst the chaos, and his dedication to innovation and training and mentoring future generations. His is an incredible journey of dedication, ingenuity, and unwavering passion for service and healing. I'm Doug Soderdahl, Executive Director of Wardocs, and had the privilege to know Tony personally as a longtime friend and colleague. Find out more about the incredible life of Tony Johnson and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm uh, Dr. Anthony Johnson. I am a cornea specialist and a refractor surgeon and spent 32 years in the military and then transitioned in the last five years. I've had the honor of staying and being teaching faculty at Brook Harley Medical Center and Wilford Hall's combined residency program. When did you decide that you wanted to be a physician? Was that kind of like while you're in high school as a kid or while you're at West Point? That's an interesting question. I thought about that. I talked to my mom and my mom said, I always wanted to do something medical. From the time she can remember, I used to always watch little medical TV shows. Like they have 911 now, but we used to have like an emergency show back in the day. And I've always had this gravity towards medical, a desire to practice medicine from a young age. And I didn't know if it was going to be possible when I decided to go to college and go to West Point. I thought that maybe medicine would be something I could do in the future, but it wasn't something that I'd expected to be able to do kind of right straight through just because of the West Point's requirement that only 2% of the graduating class could go to medical school at any given time. But there was so much prestige and, and stuff and being accepted to, the, to West Point that I, I decided that that would be the best route to go and that I would eventually seek out medicine in the future. And you had mentioned that growing up, there weren't a lot of minority officers. When you were at West Point, were you one of the kind of few minority 
members there at that time? And then were there any other kind of memories from West Point that really kind of stuck out to you? Well, by the time I got to West Point, it was mid 80s. So I think about 10% of my class was African-American by the time I got here. So that, that was about the largest mix of people that I had been around in quite a while. But West Point was an interesting experience. I had interviewed and did all my interviews except at West Point here in San Antonio. So I got accepted and decided to go, having never visited West Point until the day that I had arrived there on our reorganization day. I had about a brief five-minute talk with a cadet in the PX that I bumped to after I had accepted to go to the West Point. And I had watched the movie The Long Gray Line right around the time period of my graduation from high school, which I thought was a historical depiction of what West Point was back in the 40s and 50s. However, it turned out that, as they say, West Point is 200 years of tradition uninterrupted by progress, that it turned out to be very similar to my experience when I got there. And so once I got there, it was just a constant reminder of the history of the place that we were, that we had been there, the graduates, and the importance of how, what the graduates played in the history of our country. And so once you got there, it was difficult and challenging, but at the same time, it was hard to walk away because there was just so much history and prestige of being there. And so I think also it really fostered a strong camaraderie between the classmates and uh, the other graduates. So once you got there, you were there to excel and you were there with your classmates and together we were trying to make it through there and count ourselves as graduates. By time now, I learned a lot of life lessons. The biggest one I think was, we used to have a thing that's called cooperate and graduate. And what it meant to us is that no one kind of excels or goes alone, but you're able to graduate and achieve heights by both helping others and getting assistance from others, fostering talent around yourself and then maximizing that talent as best that you could. And so once you graduate and you see somebody who has the ring, it's like a fraternity. There's an automatic kinship of shared experiences, common values. Did you think that you were going to be an ophthalmologist coming out of the Uniform Services University? That was very interesting. When I went through medical school and I got to my third year, I think besides maybe psychiatry, I liked every rotation that I did. I liked internal medicine. I liked infectious disease. I liked cardiology. I liked my surgical rotations and stuff. So at the end of third year, I really wasn't 100% sure of what I wanted to do. Ophthalmology wasn't even really on my radar. What ended up happening with that, I was in third, into my third year and I was doing an OB rotation. And during my OB rotation, the first baby that I was assigned to catch or, or to help deliver was the baby of an ophthalmology tech at Walter Reed. And so while his wife is in labor, he spent the good part of about four or five hours of my time with her doing all the measurements and stuff telling me about how great ophthalmology was and that I should really check it out as a specialty. And it hadn't been on my radar at all. I didn't know much about it. We only had a couple of introductions with it when we got our physical exam sections and stuff. And I said, well, I'll check it out. Ophthalmology became by far my first choice 
And I end up rechanging my schedule from fourth year, doing an eight-week rotation ophthalmology, and then subsequently started interviewing actively to try to get into the specialty. Can you give us a little bit of the time frame of, of when you finished West Point, when you finished UCIS, and then your internship and GMO? Okay, so I graduated from West Point, 1987. Went straight to medical school, so used his class in 1991. Did my internship at Fitzsimmons Transitional, so that was 91 to 92. From 92 to 94, I spent two years at Fort Bragg as a flight surgeon. That was where they had the big Pope fire. So the current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who I knew at West Point as a TAC officer, was a company commander in the 82nd Airborne. And they were on the flight line at Pope Air Force Base when a fighter that was taking off clipped the tail of a, I think a C-131 or C-141 and crashed into all of the soldiers that were preparing to board the aircraft to go jump. And we had, oh no, I mean, we had 40 50 burn victims all hit Womack at the same time period. And, and so as a flight surgeon, I got to fly the medevac missions of all those people all over to Cape Fear, Duke, and stuff like this during that time period. So that was the 1992 to 1994, I was the flight surgeon. I did my residency 1994 to 1997. I graduated there. I went to Fort Campbell. And was a, I was a general ophthalmologist there. Eventually became chief of ophthalmology there. And I was there for between 1997 and 2000. And then 2000, I went to fellowship. You kind of are the suturing guru. And I think that that started while you were in fellowship, right? So when we would do corneal transplants, Doyle Stolting had us do simple interrupted sutures, the fellows. And then he would do a running suture. And so what he told us at the very beginning of our fellowship was that if you can suture as fast as me, you will do a lot of transplants. If you can't be efficient and suture quickly, then you would start a lot of transplants, but you wouldn't get to, you wouldn't do as many as you needed to be because he was all about efficiency in the OR. And so when I got to the OR with him, he started me on that, how my, my suture by the numbers, grab the tissue, invert it put the needle down, pass the needle. All that came from Doyle Stolte initially in terms of how we approached suturing. Now, George Waring liked to do double running sutures, 10-0 running suture with 11 running, running suture. And as a fellow who's just starting out, I think watching him do surgery was just watching poetry in motion. He was just so efficient and so fast. He would do like one taste and then he put the first throw in and say, okay, Tony, take over. And then he would just leave. He's just gone. And we'd sit there in the OR doing the, 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 the running 10-0 and then the running 11 And so we'd break the suture and then we'd start over. And it's always painful for the nurses during the, the month of July and August the new fellows come in because they knew when Wuthering got into the OR and he made it to these, these cases that they were, on, they were in for two and three hour transplants as the residents would struggle or the fellows would struggle with this 11-0 suture. And then you'd break the 11-0 suture and you would know what to do with it. But then you start over again. And so I remember every case was a triumph. And I remember there was one time period 
I think I broke the lead metal suture maybe three or four times. I said, I'm board certified. I'm making a command decision. And I did a double Tino. And Wary was so disappointed the next day about my choice and stuff like this. And so I embarked on that time period to learn my suturing skills better so that I would not disappoint him in that fashion. And so I approached Doyle Stolte to ask him about the dilemma of breaking sutures on a running suture and how to deal with it. And we had talked about you breaking the suture and then, and then you would splice the suture together and then, and then continue on. But he always told me that was unacceptable because you would have two knots in the wound. And if you tried to bury the two knots, inevitably the tension across the wound would not be perfect because you'd have to adjust the tension so that both knots could stay below the surface. And so he said that you never had two knots in the wound. You only had to have one. And so he described this technique of splicing the two sutures together and then back in the knot out of the wound all the way to the beginning and then going with this one suture. But he he described it, but he never showed me the technique because I was never in the OR when he ever broke a suture. So it was always a theoretical thing that I knew about. However, when I finished my fellowship and I came back from Iraq, he approached me with this book chapter that I could write on suturing. And I said, oh, this will be great. And so I said, I'm going to put into this chapter so the solution that he taught me so that no one else has to deal with what I had to. And we had this exercise that we would do on Friday afternoons because Doyle used to sail competitively. And so we would bring this book. I bought this book, Ashley's Book of Knots, and he would, for dexterity purposes, things like this, he would teach us how to do these real intricate knots and stuff like this. And so I had this big book. And so I went through the book and I was looking at all the knots and stuff. And I found a section called the bend. And in a sailing term, a bend is when you can take two knots and splice them together. And so I saw the techniques and I saw one of those that would, that would work extremely well in a surgical theater. And so I practiced that and I developed I developed the technique to splice the knots together very efficiently in a small knot that I could then back out through the wound and then just do my running suture all the way around with a single knot. So I wrote up the technique. And then while I was in the OR with Abe Sir, Abe Sir at the time was a third-year resident, I got halfway through the surgery. I broke the, the running suture on purpose. I spliced it back did this technique again, and then finished the technique. And then I, I converted the VHS to a DVD. And I sent that in with my book chapter to Dr. Maxi, who was the editor of the, the, this book that we were doing. But Dr. Maxi, she was like, she was like a cornea goddess. I mean, she was like the head of the cornea society. She had been the head of the ocular microbiology, immunology group. I mean, she was just like, every time we go to one of those big meetings, stuff like this, there were a lot of few women leaderships, but she was she was always there. And so she was writing the book that I submitted this chapter to. And I remember the following day in the evening time, I got this call from a very excited Dr. Maxi. And it was like, Tony, 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 I saw your video that you submitted and I showed it to my fellow and we broke a suture on a running suture and we did your technique and it works perfectly. And she said, and... To me, that was a very humble experience, not only because someone of such you know, renown 
had contacted me to tell me that my technique and stuff was so great. But the second that she was like the best of the best of the best, and she had never been taught this technique or how to deal with the broken suture this way. She'd always just buried the two knots. And so that was in part my odyssey for my kind of suturing, my, my, my history of wanting to do suturing well. But also part of it was that just as I finished my fellowship, I got to Bamsi at the end of September. I moved to my house in October. Three months later, I was called up to go to OIF. And then I got deployed for a year where I did like 130 ruptured globes. And during that time period, most of the, most of them were IEDs and, and fragmentary issues, but there were a lot of blood trauma. And because the IEDs were small, I had to do a lot of suturing. So I just did a lot of scleral suture, cornea suture, and nine times out of 10, I was in the OR by myself. So I had to refine the techniques of doing it so that I could do it as my own, as a single operator, as opposed to having another good person in the OR with me. And so from that experience, that really kind of galvanized my thoughts on how important good surgical technique was and kind of caught me on that, on that road towards kind of being the suture guy at Bamson. That was kind of my niche, teaching people to suture well. So one of the u- unique aspects of being a military ophthalmologist is deploying. And we heard a little bit after your fellowship, you then deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom. Can you share with us your experience on deployment, some memorable patients, experiences, and, and kind of major lessons learned from your deployment? Deployment was unusual in a number of ways. It was kind of a transformative experience because I learned much about myself. I learned about the army. I learned about leadership at a, like a cash level and how it affected everybody. I saw small unit leadership. I saw how stress affected, how people dealt with stress, good and bad. We had other stressors, austere environment, 130 degree temperatures, you know, scud muscle launches, spent the first three weeks in theater every night, getting in and out of clinical suits, running into bunkers, no effective communication with your family members back home, seeing this horrific injuries and kids that were young enough to be your own kids. And so I just learned so much about that process. We deployed as an IT, which doesn't exist anymore, but had its vestiges going back, I guess, into the Vietnam time period. And so we had three surgeons on the I team, had an own CRNIA, we had an on OR nurse, we had an OR tech, and then we had an NCOIC who served as our clinic tech. And so I knew a few of the people on, on our group, um, Dr. DeMarta Lair, I knew because she interviewed at Fitzsimmons when she was a fourth year medical student and I was an intern. So I know her pretty well. I knew of Dr. Bladen, who was the head of our head and neck team. And then the other people I, I didn't know very well because they had come from Bamsey and I hadn't really spent that much time in the OR at Bamsey. And so we deployed, we had some a minimal training at Ford Hood. We spent most of our time just reviewing the equipment that we had, which most of it hadn't been used in decades. And most of it and half the equipment was stuff that we were using on humanitarian missions that the Dr. Bellman had initiated. And then we spent a lot of time trying to plus up the equipment to get it ready to deploy to Iraq. So then once we got the equipment together and we argued for a portable microscope, we got to Fort Hood to get to fly out. And then it was, okay, you're flying out tomorrow in a DC-10. 
pack all your stuff on the pallets for DC-10. So we packed all our stuff on the pallets for DC-10. Oh, there's no room on the aircraft for you. Tomorrow you're going on a C-17. So then we're C-17. So we had to re-unpack everything, repack it again for a C-17 pallet. So we did this probably about four or five times, just packing and repacking all of our equipment based on the, the plane that we were going to fly on. And so we finally got our stuff in. We packed all our stuff together. And so we got ready to fly. And we said, hey, look, there's just not enough space on the flight, on, on this flight, because you had your helmet. We had our nine millimeter. Some had M16s. We had all of our equipment. And we had our gas masks and stuff like this. And so most of us, we had to carry a gas mask with us. That was a requirement. We had to have our weapon at all times. So I think 80 or 90% of the people who flew on the aircraft had their chemical suit onto the aircraft with the rest of their baggage. And so we, we took off and then I, we landed in Kuwait airport. It was like 120 degrees when we landed on the, on the aircraft. And so the, the guy came on the overhead announcement and said, this morning, about two hours before we landed, Iraq shot a Scud missile that flew over the airport and landed in the Gulf opposite the airport, which told us, number one, that we were in the range of the Scud missiles. And number two is that if they had chemical weapons in, we were kind of in trouble because my chemical weapons suit was with my baggage underneath the, underneath the plane. All I had was my gas mask. So, we got off the plane and we got into this, it's like a small school bus. We're jammed in maybe two or three people to a seat. And the, the cash was on the opposite side of the airport. So all of us are all jammed in to this, to the school bus. And so we started heading around the airport to go to the, to go to the cash when halfway around the airport, the stud missile alarm went off. Now, of course, we had been in theater for, what, 30 minutes now when this happens? And, and so people in the back are like, Scud missile, gas, right? So someone calls a gas alarm. And so if you can imagine 100 people in a school bus, three people to a seat, all trying to get their gas masks off and get into their mop gear with literally no room. It was mass pandemonium. People were screaming. They were trying to get their helmets on. And at the same time, all I had was my mask. I put my mask on and just got into the corner and just prayed that no missile launched. And I remember through all the chaos, looking out the door and seeing the two bus drivers where it's just massive pandemonium inside the bus. And then outside the bus, the two of the bus drivers are sitting back smoking cigarettes, leaning against the bus while there's like mass pandemonium inside the bus. I just thought to myself, this is going to be a long deployment. This is how we're starting. Fortunately, no scud missiles. They gave us the all clear. We came around the, the terrestrial way and I got my equipment. The cash itself was designed to have one orthopedic surgeon, three general surgeons as part of its organic kind of surgical assets. And when I got there, we had the IT, we had two neurosurgery teams. We had like three orthopedic surgeons. We had two vascular surgeons. We had a thoracic surgeon. And so I remember coming into the hospital and meeting the head nurse of the OR. And she looked at us. And the first thing she said was, 
We have no room for you. All your equipment's going out in the sand, okay? And go see someone so to find a place for you to sleep. And so they ended up putting us in the morgue, actually, because it was the fighting hadn't started. I was sleeping in the morgue right across from the hospital. We spent the next part of the day getting our equipment out, at least finding where it was at, and then setting up my, my cot. And then for the next three weeks, every night, the Scud missile would, would go off. And if you were inside the hospital, it was a chemically protected hospital. So it was positive pressure throughout certain parts of the hospital. So if you were inside the hospital, you could operate theoretically safe, although some people put gas masks on. But if you weren't, you were outside and you had to go put your, all your, all your mop gear on for Tim and then go find a bunker. Well, there was a bunker right outside where my tent was. But by the time I got all my chemical weapon stuff on and I ran outside to the bunker, it was full. So then I ran to the next one and it was full. And so I ended up like the first night, like halfway around the hospital, going from bunker to bunker, trying to find a place to get into. I said, this is crazy. So the next night I slept in like mop two. So I had my pants on my top off. And so I had my mask on to my side. And so all I had to do was when the alarm went off, I got to the side of my bed. I slipped on my mop shoes. I put my mask on, walked outside the door. And then I was the first person in the bunker because I was half dressed in chemical gear. So I spent my first three weeks dressed in chemical gear, going in and out of bunkers at nighttime. Once the war actually started, the first, because if you remember at the time period, the U.S. forces were moving pretty quickly. And then there was, the, I think it was the 805, the 806 MASH that was following one of the major units that were there. And so all the people that were being initially injured had gone through the mash initially. And then they came to the cache that we were at, the overfilled cache. And so the first eye entry came in. And I remember me, Sean, and Sherry, it was close to midnight, and we had our flashlights on in the middle of this open drive area, going through all of our boxes, pulling all of our surgical stuff off pallets and stuff like this. We had our had it semi-organized to get our stuff all dressed up for our first alarm. Fortunately, we knew before because we packed everything, you know, we had a good manifest. So we knew exactly what was in each of our cases, where the suture was located, how much we had in the beach stuff and whatnot. And we had used our numbers for our humanitarian missions as a guide to knowing how to pack everything. And so we ended up packing all that stuff in going to the OR and doing our first case. After about a day or two, as cases started coming through, this pattern became apparent. If there was an eye injury that came in, the person who got to the mash got automatically immediately evacuated straight back to us. So eye injuries always had fresh trauma. If there was anything else, a gunshot wound to the chest, if there was the orthopedic injury, anything else that came through, they got taken care of by the surgeons in the mesh, and then they had the follow-on surgery at our cash. So they called it, what, what the general surgeon would call it was used trauma. They got used trauma when it was a non-eye injury, but if it was an eye or nerve surgery injury, then it was fresh trauma. So anytime there was a injury that came in, everybody was always interested in knowing when the eye cases were coming in. 
because that was their one time period to be able to do wartime surgery on a fresh patient that hadn't had surgery beforehand. And as the number of eye injuries kept on coming in, the corneal ulcers kept on coming in, they just realized that we were just super busy. We were busy more than anyone else. The, because people were wearing flak vests, there wasn't much chest trauma. There was the extremity trauma. There was eye trauma. And then there was neurosurgery trauma, most of which got to the brain through the eye. And so very quickly, they said, you guys need room. So they, they created a vestibule off the side of the hospital to give me an eye clinic. They set up another vestibule for the OR for us to move all of our surgical stuff into the OR. And then they permanently set up one of the big lycra microscopes in one of the ORs because it was too big to go up the rib into the ORs that they had. But because it took up so much space, we didn't get to use it very often. And we ended up using the portable microscopes most of the time period. But that's kind of my first introduction into kind of being in theater. Wow. And you started in Kuwait and then you guys, you've kind of worked into Iraq or, and what happened with the heading into like kind of move in facilities during the deployment? So we went into Kuwait, eight of us on our team. And we didn't know this at the time period, but there was an ophthalmologist in Iraq, which was his own separate theater. So Iraq and Kuwait were two different theaters of, and they had their own general officer and their whole chain of command and everything like that. So a flight surgeon for a reserve unit that was also an ophthalmologist had gone by to the 28th cache on one occasion and it helped them disposition a bunch of eye patients and help the neurosurgeons do a case that had eye involved. And so I think he had rotated back. First, of course, we got orders to come back because the war like peaked really quickly and then it died down. And then Bush had come in and he had declared victory and everything. And there wasn't much surgical cases. And so our eye team came on a list to go back. And so the first people to go back was the, the area pathology unit. They shipped back. We came up next. And as we were preparing to come back to the U.S., our orders were canceled because the, the general and the hospital commander were concerned about the excessive number of corneal ulcers that we were dealing with for the reservists who deployed without glasses and who were in contact lenses. And they really didn't have any effective means to deal with that. And so the first time around, the theater commander canceled our orders and extended us to stay longer. And then it happened a second time. After our second extension, we received, we started receiving requests from the Iraqi theater for the ophthalmologists who had helped before to come back and help them with future cases because they were piling up these eye cases inside their hospital. They didn't know what to do with them. They can disposition. And they're like, wow, okay. But I said, but there is no ophthalmologist in theater. We only sent one eye team to theater. That was us. And we were in Kuwait. We never got to Iraq. So they, so they were like, we want this ophthalmologist. So they decided that, okay, well, we'll give you an ophthalmologist. So we got into Iraq, landed at the airport. And then we were told about the IED situation that, that they were having. And so our equipment had got there. And so the equipment couldn't fly out. They flew us by C-130 to the Iraqi International Airport. And so the equipment had to go by, by a truck. And so he needed somebody to stay with the equipment, inventory it, and to take it in by truck. And so that ended up being me. 
so that he, as the commander of our unit, could go in, meet the new commander of the cache, and kind of get our team kind of tucked in with space and stuff as I came along with the equipment to the back to the cache. So while I was there, I bumped into one of my, my West Point classmates who was at the airport at the time, Pierre. He was a combat engineer. He kind of helped me get to my equipment. He helped me with my inventory. He packed it all into a little deuce and a half. And he gave me the lid about what the IEDs were doing, what was the proper response if, if something were to happen. He kind of broke that down for me. And then I, with a bunch of drivers, then drove down and drove the equipment into the middle of the desert, essentially. In about 15 to 20 minutes in the middle of nowhere in the desert, that's where the cache was. And so by the time I got to the cache, it was very interesting because as I got to the door, there was the liver transplant surgeon was standing in the door of the cache when I got off the, the deuce and a half with all my equipment. And he looked at me and he goes, are you the ophthalmologist? And I said, yes, I'm the ophthalmologist. He goes, damn, am I glad to see you. I have never gotten any kind of welcome like that from any general surgeon or anything ever since then. But I got a beautiful, warming welcome from the liver transplant surgeon assigned to the 20th cache, welcoming me into the cache when I got there. When I got there, of course, we got there to a bunch of turmoil because it turned out that the DCCS on the cache in the 40, at the cache in the 47 was best friends with the DCCS of the 28th. And I guess they had compared notes and stuff. And by the time we had landed, and so we had not only got there when Sean Blading got reassigned from our cache to the brigade staff where he was assigned to essentially travel around the theater, look at all the coalition hospitals and stuff and make sure that they were practicing standard of care medicine. So we went from three surgeons down to one. Our OR nurse had some medical issues and she got shipped back to the medevac back to the States. Our CRNA got sent back because they needed to stand up a new CRNA program at Beaumont Hospital in El Paso. And so by the time we August, September came, our group of eight was just down to me. And I was essentially the sole member left of our eye surgical team. It got adopted by a FST that was co-assigned to the group, kind of helped me do my logistics, helped me order equipment and stuff like this. And so from about September 2003 until March of 2004, I was the only ophthalmologist doing eye surgery in the theater of operations while I was there. Wow. So that, that's quite the adventure. And it, now one of the stories you've told me, and I'd like you to you share is about, I think you had several open globes all show up at once and you're basically th for three days operating and you take naps like between cases for 15 minutes and then you're back to operating again. It sounds exciting. I don't know if I could have made it, but uh, can you share that experience with us? Yeah, so that was, I think, in September or so. Our cash was a, a full cash, but half of the cash was not set up. They had split the cash off and half the cash was actually sent into Baghdad and they had taken over a hospital that Saddam Hussein's son had got, had survived the assassination attempts and they had this hospital that they had designed for him to rehab at. They had taken over that hospital. So they had started setting that up as a fixed facility for us to move into inside the green zone in Iraq. So once the hospital was considered up and operational, 
we had to conduct what was the first time a cash had moved in combat since Vietnam because they had the match that was moving in Kuwait, but not a combat support hospital because a combat support hospital is only 30% mobile. I mean, it can only move 30, with, with its organic assets, it can only move 30% of its, of its supplies and stuff. And so what they did was we had about four or five other caches and FST spread all around Baghdad and Balad. And so they closed down our hospital trauma and diverted everything else to the other hospitals. The problem was that we had the only neurosurgeons in theater and we had the only ophthalmologists in theater. And so we closed it down and we started all these series of flights, breaking down the hospital, flying the patients to Baghdad into the new hospital. And so they kept up one of the OR vestibules. They kept up a sterilization section. They kept up a tent and stuff like this, and had some people in the ICU. What happened was, as, as just as we were, we were down the last couple of flights that were scheduled to go out, and we were getting ready to break down the OR section, the U United Nations building in Iraq got bombed. And so when the UN building got bombed, of course, it was vast casualty situation. And all of the, the casualties got sent all across to all the combat support hospitals. But, but the problem was there was a couple of people who had really, really bad brain and facial injuries. One guy had a, it looked like the pull of a stop sign that had entered under his orbit on one side, burst his orbit into the other orbit. It was outside his, his face and it was so far out that they had to cut the thing off to fit him into the helicopter to fly him out to where we were. And so there was a few of us left. There was like a general surgeon. We had a OMF. There was the uh, neurosurgeon. I think Sean had popped back in briefly. And then me, and that was about it. And then OR staff. So we got these first couple of people gone. They flew out. But then we got word that there were eight ruptured globes of patients that had to be evaluated and treated. And by the time Sean was gone, it was just me, a bunch of OR staff there. I don't even know if the neurosurgeon was still there or not. And so we had to run in and set up the tents for the FST that was there because that was their backup plan. We set up an FST tent outside of our hospital and then they brought all the, the eight mass, the eight people with the rupture globes into this tent. And then I went and evaluated each of them, decided which was the most serious, who had the bilateral rupture globes and stuff, and then put our priority for them and then had them set up the OR I had like one surgical set or set up for it. And so what I would do is I would go in, they would sterilize the set, the patient would come in, I would do the ruptured globe, I'd fix the ruptured globe. And then when they went back and sterilized the sets, I got to go down and then lay down, get some rest before the next patient came into the OR. And so we did this for essentially 36 hours straight. I went from one ruptured globe to the next doing the surgeries, I would lay down, I would rest. They would, they would sterilize my things. They'd come in and say, hey, Dr. Johnson, the next person's ready. Then I'd go in, I'd do the surgery. And then after the 36-hour period was over, and then we got everybody all stabilized and stuff like this, we all flew back into Baghdad, and then we resumed their care at the fixed facility at Ibn Sina. And so that was my biggest kind of eye mask tower, just eye, eye injuries only that I was dealing with.
Wow, that's impressive. And rumor has it you ran into a few of these people. It's a small community. Three years you ran through your West Point grads and you ran into some of your patients down the road. Is that true? Yes. So I kept an email contact with about two or three of the eight from the UN bombing for about a couple of years after I left. So one of the ladies, interestingly, her name was Isabel. I don't know what she got hit with, but she split her court. She had a laceration that went from one from the medial rectus, under the medial rectus, up to the cornea. It split the cornea in half and then went down under the lateral rectus. And I remember her specifically because my, when I did her case, her cornea was literally split in half, but her lens was perfectly clear. I don't know how you rupture a globe like that and have a perfectly clear lens. But I remember doing this case and just in trepidation, just like, what are these, what are these needles? It's going to go straight. I'm going to hit that lens capsule. But I went all the way through. I did the case. I did the, all the suits and stuff like that. I said, look, you are going to have a traumatic cataract that's going to have to be dealt with when you get back. And it's going to be difficult because you had this ruptured globe. You had this laceration right through the center of your cornea. So her fiance worked for the UN said, hey, look, Money's no object. I said, well, then you need to go to Mass Eye in the Air. And I gave them a couple names to use. So when you go back there, that you're going to go to Mass Eye in the Air to get this, to get this cataract taken care of when you get back. So meanwhile, life went on and I lost contact with them and stuff like that. And then we got a humanitarian mission to Burkina Faso. And so we had gone to Burkina Faso, Africa, and we'd done this, this awesome humanitarian mission. I mean, we had taught the locals how to do small incision cataracts that we had learned in Nepal, my technique, and Ed Wilson had shown his technique for doing it. We had taught Casey Carlton, had led the mission and everything. And, and so we taught him how to do the extra cast. We taught all of his technicians stuff like this, and we were feeling really great. And so we had gone back. It was the day we were scheduled to leave, and we were in our hotel, and we got a call that asked us if we would mind coming by the embassy because the Marines were trying to raise money for the Marine Corps Bowl, and they had a kind of outdoor cookout at the embassy grounds, and they were selling tickets, and they wanted to know if our group would join it, buy some tickets, maybe buy some T-shirts, <laughs> some coins and things like this to help them raise money for the Marine Corps Bowl. And we're like, sure, okay. So we go, and, and so I'm, in, I'm at this embassy, and I'm in line trying to get out from my quesadillas, and this guy walks up there and taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, are you Dr. Johnson? I said, yes, I'm Dr. Johnson. He goes, oh, were you ever were you ever in Iraq? I said, yeah, I was in Iraq. But gosh, man, that was like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. He said, yeah. So he said, yeah. And he looked at me and he goes, hey, he looks semi-familiar. But then he turned around and goes, hey, Isabel, it is him. And then across the area that we were sitting in the pool, there was a young lady there and she was bawling like a baby and she had two kids with her. And it was Isabel who was one, who was a lady who split her, who split her cornea, who had the, uh, I told her was going to get the cataracts. She was in the pool area at this place because she ended up marrying her husband. He ended up working for the state department and he was assigned to AFRICOM. And so he was there as an auditor for AFRICOM. And so I, of course, I immediately recognized her and I went in there, of course, and now we're hugging and everything like this. And she introduced me to her kids and things like this. And then she showed me her eyes and Dr. Johnson, I went back to the United States. I went to Harvard, like you said, 
They looked at my eye. They couldn't believe that I could injure myself like this and that kind of injury and not have any cataract. And so they brought me to Grand Rounds. So a bunch of people looked at me, they owed and odd, and I just went home. I got a contact lens and I have 20, 30 vision to this day with my contact lens through this cornea. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It was like, like serendipity. It was like, how can I cross paths with this person in the middle of Africa having, having not met her, seen her for that time period? So I got back. After I met her, we took pictures and everything together. And so she, of course, was Facebook friends for the other people who I had taken care of at the UN. And it turned out that the, I guess, the equivalent of the secretary general for the UN for Iraq, his secretary was one of the UN bombing patients. She was Filipino. She had retired and she was living in Manila. And she and I, she had some depression after the, after her eye injury and stuff. And so I had corresponding with her for quite a while, just kind of trying to increase her spirit, stuff like this, and tell her about how life goes on and she can, and whatnot. And we had eventually, she eventually got better and lost contact. Well, then, of course, she emails me back again and goes, well, Dr. Johnson, I'm jealous because you got to see Isabel. If you ever come to the Philippines, I'm living in Manila. You should stop by and see me. And I said, as a matter of fact, I'm coming to the Philippines in three weeks because I'm going to visit my wife's family, which she hadn't seen in a while. And we have an overnight stay in Manila because our next flight to her island doesn't happen to the following day. So we landed at Manila. I got to my hotel, called her. She came back by the hotel, picked me and my wife up, took us out to a nice dinner, and we got to talk and stuff like that for a couple of hours or so. And then the next day, I, of course, flew on to Cebu. And so me and Marilyn are still Facebook friends to this day. And, and so I met two of my UN patients within a three-week period, like 12 years after the fact, after I had taken care of them in Iraq. That's amazing. After your deployment, you returned to Brook Army Medical Center and kind of ended up having a career there in, as a cornea refractive surgeon. You were an associate program director, kind of chief of the clinic. Tell us a little bit about your, your career there when you came back from deployment. Well, I got back, of course, well, I got right as the Fallujah campaign came on. And so things were really starting ramping up. And then, of course, then everything kind of went off the rails and made all the IEDs and stuff like that done. But having come back again, it had been the, essentially the first group in theater. Then, of course, me and Shark then received a bunch of speaking engagements. And part of all, we clear this for this, right, this chapter of this book. But Marilyn Max, I kind of took me under her wing. She got me on a couple of the suturing classes at the academy as a teacher instructor there. She invited me twice to speak at the World Cornea Congress. I spoke, gosh, I mean, I traveled and, and got to speak at a lot of nice places afterwards. I, I flew into San Diego and they sponsored a talk and I, I gave a talk there. And so part of the issue was being on the circuit from that standpoint, giving give a bunch of talks about my time in Iraq and stuff like this. But then, of course, it was on the ocular trauma course. Because then now, now we have people coming back from the conflict with kind of real combat experience, which we hadn't had in quite a while. And so then I really got a chance to get to speak there. And, and because of my time in Iraq and us having a trauma center here at BAMC, I really got to kind of settle in and got to kind of expand some of the teaching that I was doing with the residents in terms of ruptured globe repairs and suturing skills, stuff like this. And that kind of end up becoming my niche by virtue of my experience there. Of course, we always had the burn center and stuff like that there, but 
it was it was that kind of experience there that kind of put my my career in terms of what my institutional memory was for the for the military and what my unique skills were that would help teach the next generation of doctors getting ready to deploy. That's what kind of became my kind of my new raison d'etre by by reason by by, by reason of of my experience there. And having gone through there initially, having seen all the problems that we had with the equipment and things like that, I took additional duties on updating all the equipment that the, the, the deployable ophthalmology teams broke everything by NSN numbers, by things. And I did that for, gosh, another 10 years afterwards, just updating all our supplies and things like this. And then just kind of being there for assistance for the people in the theater if they had questions or issues or needed equipment or anything like this, I became part of the subject matter expert. Well, anyone that's trained at BMC has appreciated you sharing your knowledge and skills with Suture. And, and we've all love our time and want you to be there when we suture. So we appreciate you sharing those lessons. Did you ever think you'd get out of the military? Or what were your thoughts as kind of any major turning points in your career? I think the first pivotal point in my career was actually a four-mile run at Fort Bragg. I was a flight surgeon there. I had just joined my new unit and we had a command run in which our brigade had this four mile run. And when we had the big four mile runs, as you haven't been in the TONE unit, it's a really a big deal. The whole unit lines up and it's, it's a big fanfare type deal. But for us who are doing sick calls, general medical officers, it was really the day that I dreaded the most because anybody who didn't want to do the four mile run came in on sick call. And sick call, which is usually going to be an hour-long lasting, sometimes three or four hours, you know, of profiles and things like this. And I really dreaded those days just because it was just, most of the time here were minor injuries that people were embellishing a little bit because they didn't want to do the big runs and stuff. And so I, I talked to the other doctors and said, hey, would you mind if me and Dr. Hernandez skipped sick call and we would represent the doctors at the run? And of course, they didn't care because they, they, did they didn't want to do the run. So me and Javier Hernandez joined our unit at the four-mile run. So everybody's in formation and we walk up. And I think my commander almost had a seizure. Oh, my God, the dogs are here. Can you believe it? My two dogs are had a four-mile run. And so the whole, the whole unit is like yelling and cheering and stuff like this because the two dogs showed up at the four-mile run because we don't usually do these things because we're sick cold. And so we got in line, got in formation. And because we were there, our commander now had, a, had enough staff to do two ranks. He had the S1, S2, S3, S4. He had two dogs. He had his intelligence officer and his senior instructor pilots all as a second rank. So he was proud of this whole rank that he had. And so, but we were the last unit. So as the, as the run started, of course, you hear the gunshot. Everybody starts running. Five minutes later, we haven't started running yet. And then all of a sudden, because of the yo-yo effect of these big formations, we started out like a dead sprint. I mean, we were doing probably like six, six and a half minute mile for about the first mile, just trying to catch up with the formation, only to come to a dead almost stop and almost walk for like another half mile or so. Then we turn around and sprint again. And then this big yo-yo effect until we finally, about mile three, set it to kind of a nice, easy pace that everybody could kind of follow along with. But because of all this yo-yo and things like this, the S4, who was in the rank right in front of me, 
started to fall out of the rug. Initially, he would fall back to our rank, then he would catch back up again. And then he would fall back around to the next rank, then he would catch back up again. But after a while, he just couldn't do it. And he started falling back towards the end of formation. And so since now my commander had short and I was behind him, I stepped up into his immediate rank behind him to fill the spot for the S4 who fell out of the run. And then the other people moved over. And so when we came around to the pass and review, our commander salutes and then looks over his shoulder and sees me behind him. And then we get to the end, he goes on this tirade about the fact that his S4 dropped out of the run and he had to have a dock fill his place. Well, that became our niche, the doctors that could run and whatnot. And I'm convinced that my OER from him, and he was the Desert Story hero. He led the Apache Brigade over the first berm when, when they first went in. His unit led it, and he was the commander of that unit. So in the aviation community, the infantry community, Colonel Vincent was like the aviation god. And when he gave me top block for my OER and stuff like this, it was, I got major below the zone. And I am convinced it was almost 90% of it was because of that four-mile run that I have. So turning ports to career, being able to do a four-mile run, get you below the zone. Well, you've, you've had an amazing career and, and taken on a lot of roles. It, it's impressive what you've done, and especially the research as an innovator. So what, what are your favorite parts of being an educator, mentor, ophthalmologist, and most importantly, a father and husband? I, I love interacting with patients. I love the ability to change the quality of people's lives with surgery and medical treatment. A lot of times when they come to us, they're having problems. They can't work. They're having trouble driving. They're having trouble doing their activities of daily living. And you get to kind of get invited into their family. You can then set up a treatment plan for them, do surgery in a very short period of time, just have just life-changing effects on those patients. And so that is just one of my favorite parts. Other favorite parts, of course, is humanitarian missions. I love humanitarian missions because I think it's medicine at its purest. Going there, seeing the need, having people who can't afford it, and just bringing life-changing surgeries to those patients. I love the enthusiasm of the residents. It's just invigorating to go there and to be able to teach the residents and then see them when that light goes off and they just thing just kind of clicks and they grasp the concepts and they just truly understand it and everything. And then to watch them where you're on the simulator and you're trying to pass a suture in you're, and you're helping them do that. And then you're sitting them in the OR with them third years and they're doing fake goals faster than you are. And then you see generation after generation of residents just excelling, doing great on the boards, taking great care of their patients, and just bringing this infectious enthusiasm for medicine or for life into your practice the whole time period. And so that really helps, makes you get up, it makes it happy to come to work. You're happy to come to work every day just for that reason only. Because of my experiences in residency and, and things like this, I kind of learned my own type of leadership style. And I kind of never felt that adversarial relationship with the residents was, for me, my most effective way of teaching the residents. So I always like to joke around with the residents and stuff like this. And, and sometimes it sometimes use humor to try to get them to understand where they make mistakes and things like this. And But just acknowledge the fact that these guys are 
top of their class, coming into residency, they're top of their medical school class, they come into a specialty, and even though they don't know that much about ophthalmology, these guys are all super, super smart, and they can be doing anything else they want to, and just appreciating what they brought in, and then being able to then augment that, and kind of take their take their knowledge to the next level and get them to appreciate the art like I just made my life very, very fulfilling. As far as my family goes, of course, I told my wife I enjoyed fatherhood. And for me, the older the kids got, the more I enjoyed it. But not that I don't have anything about babies. I love babies, but you don't interact with babies. But when babies can walk, you can chase them. And when they can get a little bit older, you can play with them. And then you can go to their sporting events and just seeing the joy in your daughter's eyes when they're come to the basketball game and you're sitting there in the stands and they see you there and they're waving and stuff like this. And then you're there yelling and screaming for them and just being present for the important things in their life and seeing their accomplishments and stuff. It's just, fatherhood is just indescribably awesome in terms of uh, fulfillment. And then, of course, I got into the youth ministry at my church. My daughter, my oldest daughter actually invited me, Amanda invited me to join the team. And that was, that was another great thing because I get to see the kids fall in love with the Catholic faith. I got to go with them on retreats and everything, but also I got to see my daughters in their own elements. I got to see their friends, interact with their friends, and then go on their trips and stuff and being the dad who was there, the dad who was at the track meet, the dad who was at the retreat, and things like that. And so that portion was just awesome for me. I even got to help coach my daughters do the triple jump. Didn't know it that much of distance. Got help likes too much with the distance. But in that part, so I think even more fulfilling, I think, than medicine is being a parent. But being residents is having like your kids anyway. The residents are like your kids. It's only a three-year stint with them, but they come in not knowing much knowledge and stuff like this. And then you build them up to subject matter experts. You bring them to their growing pains of learning their surgery and have them deal with bad outcomes and adversity. And you try to take, take them through that until they become self-sufficient leaders on their own. And then you see them graduate and you come back in, you see them in private practices or on staff, or you see them come back to staff as subject matter experts who are retina specialists and cornea specialists and things like this. So towards the end of my career, just about everybody who's on our staff there, you know, was, was one of my residents at one time where I taught them at a trauma course or something like that. All the Wilford Hall staff, Caldwell and and Davis, and you, and Chari, all of the ones who trained in the military system were all my residents at one time. And that's just so fulfilling just to see the person that you kind of honed and see them become leaders in their field and subject matter experts. Marriage, awesome institution, a lot of hard work, too many upsides to, to even count having a companion to share your life's journey with, having your family that you would spend, her culture, creating my own family, going through the hard times of what it takes to keep that marriage together, and then being able to part, impart that knowledge that I've, that I've obtained over time to my residents who are starting their lives, many of them. Some of them, when they come in, they're not engaged. They get engaged. They have children during their residency and things like that. And so... Now I have it. Oh, Charlie, who's with my current residence now, he always looks forward to my desects because when I put the desect, I put the gas in, I sit back and wait 20 minutes with the tissue in place, the gas inside the eye, get everything set up. 
Then we get to sit back and we say, okay, Dr. Johnson, what life lesson are you going to teach me today? And we talk about finances and talk about marriage. We talk about philosophies on marriage and religion and all kinds of topics that we kind of meander through that I can kind of give my perspective on to them. And so, so I can kind of take what's helped make my marriage successful and help them kind of maybe not go through some of the hard times that we have by helping them understand their spouse better and whatnot. So I think there's just so many favorite parts of my life. Looking back on it now, having had a diagnosis of cancer and having like a what, 2% five-year survival in some studies and having metastasis at the time period that my diagnosis, which puts me like in the worst group possible. It makes you look back on your life and I look back and I see my kids, and I see my military career, that I have like no regrets because just it's just so it's been so much fulfillment and having worked with the residents and their families and my patients and whatnot, that if I had to re-script my life again, I wouldn't do anything different. I don't have any wish I would have, could have done type of things there. Maybe one or two. I wish the army would let me do, I wish the army would let me do. The uveitis fellowship. I tried to do coordinate uveitis, but but in the absence of that, there are no regrets about doing anything differently. The Lord has put great people on my path to help me along the way, uh, to help me grow as a person, as an ophthalmologist, as a dad, as a husband. And I've been able to then take that what I've learned and kind of impart that onto the residents and things like that and the other people that I meet. We are so fortunate that you've been able to share your your joy for life, your passion for life and work every day with us. And, and you just you just make everyone's day in clinic. You cheer everyone up and, and we're, we're so fortunate. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.